Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Justin Ryan. We speak with Justin about his journey from a legal advisor, a lawyer, to a private equity investor and one of the leaders of the Australian private equity industry. We talk to him about the focus of Glow Capital in the growth early stage uh, segment of the market. And we talk about how he has a history of investing into companies that are quite easily understood and what many investors would call sort of meat and potato companies that have performed very, very well. We then talk to Justin about uh, his Glow Capital, his third iteration in the private equity markets and the current raising that they're doing. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. I certainly learnt a lot out of it. Uh, please remember to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. You're also encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to always remember, as usual, that this is not advice uh, and people are encouraged to get their own advice or make full inquiries before considering any investments. Enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Justin Ryan, welcome to Inside the Rope. Great to be here, David. Well, perhaps you can kick us off by letting the listeners know who you are and what your background is, please. Yeah, I'm I'm the co-founder of Glow Private Equity. Um, my background has been for the past 20 years or so in private equity, although I did take a break and went and ran a publicly listed company. I started out my career as a lawyer. I was with Allens and then I worked for another firm in New York called Davis Polk and Woodwell. Why didn't you uh, pursue legal? Why, why, why did you step out of being a lawyer? Well, I, look, I studied combined law at Sydney and naturally sort of fell into that law firm program and it was a great place to start, to be honest. I think... Um, you learn a lot about attention to detail and, and clarity of thought and uh, thinking through uh, legal issues and so on. But by the time I got to Davis Polk and Woodwell in New York, I was working with buyout funds um, on Wall Street and I thought being a scribe um, was not as interesting as actually getting involved in actually in investing and being involved what they did. And so at that time... I went off to Wharton in the US and did an MBA to sort of retool myself and then got into the private equity game. So you're a lawyer come investor? Yes. I mean, strangely enough, there doesn't seem to be so many people that do that these days, but I I did it. Well, Cal O'Brien at Anchorage jumps to um, the top of my head. Yeah, and Cal, Cal, uh, Cal acted for us when I was at Quadrant. And, yeah, I bumped into Cal recently. I, I mean, he's a tremendous person and it's been a great transition for him. So. Follow the footsteps. So so who, who is Justin Ryan outside of the workplace? What sort of things do you like to do? And, you know, when you grew, grew up, did you always want to be a lawyer or did you want to be a um, an investor? Uh, look, I, I when I grew up, I was reasonably good at school and um, I suppose I definitely didn't want to be an investor. I think be, I was a debater at school and so on. So law, law was a natural thing for me to do. Um, I probably didn't really know anything about the investing side at all. And even when I made that transition um, across to being a buyout f 
uh, I, I joined a firm called Catalyst actually in mm-hmm. ni- 1997, which is one of the early buyout funds in this country. I suppose, yeah, I just really like the idea of, um, of, of, of getting involved and growing and building uh, businesses and being more actively involved than just being a lawyer. And so I suppose that was really what attracted me to that as a career option rather than being an investor as such. And, and outside of your private equity interests, uh, I, I see that um, you're, correct me if I'm wrong here, the, on the board of NT Aboriginal Investment Corp. Um, all, also, uh, what's the name of the, it's a net company. No, Catnets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and I can't pronounce it correctly, but I see it on the beach all the time. Vicobi. Vicobi. So t- tell me about the NT Aboriginal Investment Corp. Yeah, look, that I had always done something not for profit. So um, most of my career I've always had one not for profit board and, and – um, that meant, for instance, that I was on the board of the Benevolent Society for six or seven years, um, and uh, and I, I felt that um, uh, I was also on the board of NIDA, and 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 I got the opportunity when I was um, approached by the federal government actually to go onto that board. That I thought it would be a something new, and 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 it felt right for me at that point to get involved in that. In that area, the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corp is charged with investing a corpus of five hundred million dollars and also giving um, being involved in 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 grant making uh, to the tune of about sixty million dollars a year. And so, setting up, being involved in the establishment of that organisation and thinking about the investment of that money and the long term future of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Northern Territory, I thought was a really interesting and fascinating. Thing to be involved in, and I am enjoying it very much. And is that government money, Justin? The money actually comes from the Aboriginal uh, benefits account, which is an a, account that effectively is a royalty from mining in the in the Northern Territory, and has been building over a long period of time. And so, the program uh, here is to hand out hand that money effectively back to the Aboriginal people. And what is the purpose of those investments? The purpose of the investments is to is to is for the sort of empowerment and sustainability of the Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for the long term. So, the money has sort of been held by the government on their behalf um, until now. But but the opportunity is to in, in, is to use that money to make a difference and to to yeah benefit that group of people for the for the long term. And I noticed. Justin, while we're touching on these sort of Aboriginal is- issues that you've been quite um, active for someone with your profile when I was doing a little bit of research um, around some of the issues in that area um, and particularly the voice coming up, which, you know, I, I think over the last two or three months, um, a lot of people in marketing c- and communications would question what's going on and, and how they've done it. Um, do you find, have you always been politically active or, or, or been out there um, giving your opinion or, or, or active in, you know, social media or similar? Not really. Um, and look, it's, I have had people say to me, you shouldn't be, um, your, you know, your job is to invest other people's money and build your reputation as an investor. I don't, you know, why are you talking about this? 
Um, look, I am. <clears throat> I have had the benefit of being involved in the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation and had some exposure to the issues now. And I do, I do see it as a worthwhile cause. It is. It's a. It's a slightly vexed question as to how is that bridge between the business and personal. But in this case, and where I am in life. Um, I feel strongly about it and, and I'm supportive of it and it's a, you know, I feel it's, it's a good, it's a great privilege to be able to say something about it and express my views. So I have, and I'm in favour of yes. Yeah. Good, good on you and congratulations for, for airing that. I think a lot of people in our industry get caught in a, a, a an almost a trap of, well, you know, I'm going to put people offside and I don't want to, um, count that out. So people look to leaders like yourself. Well, thank so, you for so that. Congratulations. Appreciate it. Um, and, and the other, uh, Vicobi, now I, I, I see this in that we were just talking on the way in here that one of my other partners here who's a super fish, um, Sean Abbott, who I, I try to chase around swimming down at Manly, but, but I see this brand around all of the time. Um, you're also involved with that. Tell us a little bit about that business. Yeah, that um, I'm a keen uh, surski paddler. And that, in fact, I'm very involved in a race up on the northern beaches called the 20 Beaches Ocean. It's it's actually called the Shoreham Partners 20 Beaches. They have the naming rights to it and are huge supporters of it. And it's a big race that we run up there every year. And 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 it's a not for profit. And the purpose of the of the of the race and the fundraising that goes with it is to is to ensure that we take care of the pristine oceans that we have there on the northern beaches. So it's a, it's actually got an environmental. Um, purpose. We also raise some money for Gotcha for Life, but Vicobi is a um, a brand for of uh, ocean athlete gear. So it's um, PFDs, which are it stands for personal flotation devices, and and effectively uh, gear that you would wear in the water if you're a paddler or a, uh, a sailor. And so I ca- I became uh, friends through paddling with the founder of that business, Pat Langley. And, and just have been giving him a hand over the years to, to build and grow that as a founder-led business and it's been very rewarding. Um, and, I yeah, it's great. It's, it's good to give back. Well, congratulations because I, I, I see that name on the beaches a lot and uh, I've often thought, gee, wow, I'd actually like to paddle and, gee, I'd get myself some of that kit. It looks pretty good if I were to start paddling. So that seems to be... A positive thing. Now, if we can talk a little bit about the transition from being a lawyer to an equity, a private equity investor, um, what did you learn as being in from your legal background and being a lawyer that you think has held you in good stead as an investor? Well, I think I was always, um, I always enjoyed the buying and selling. And in a way, I did that as a lawyer. I learned how to buy and sell businesses from a legal perspective. And in a way, the buying and selling, uh, you know, followed through into the investing because we do buy, you know, at the start and we sell at the end. And, and then the bit in between became much more interesting for me, that journey of growing and building businesses I found very rewarding I think uh, I was always an M and A lawyer, so I always enjoyed the interaction with people as well, and the cut and thrust of all that. And and so, yeah, I think it uh, the law just gave me a good framework to do things and to um, uh, to approach problems, and I carried that through into into the investing game. But I think if I go if I think about 
what drove me when, when I was young, my, you know, we were always buying and selling secondhand products, you know, reading on the, what was back then, like the trading, trading post. post. Yeah. <clears throat> tell them, tell jousting sticks, tell them they're dreaming. Tell them they're dreaming. So, so that was always, um, I, I guess I always loved the idea of, um, of getting involved in buying something and then selling it at a later date, potentially. Obviously, that's there's some negatives there in terms of the power of long-term com- compounding. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, rather than necessarily starting something like being a venture capitalist or a sort of – I always felt that, um, yeah, for me, I was better to sort of get involved in a certain part of the journey right, rather than necessarily from the very start. Justin, tell me a little bit about your time uh, working at Catalyst and then Quadrant. Yeah, look, I had a um, super time at Catalyst and Quadrant. I have been involved in 22 private equity uh, investments um, over 20 or so years. I did take a break between the two and actually it was following one of the investments that I did at Catalyst. I uh, invested in a a business that was called B&D Doors, a garage door business, Mm -hmm. and when we sold that business, effectively one of the directors that I'd had on our board at Catalyst was on the board of Alesco and they asked me to come over and effectively get involved at Alesco, which went on um, to, for me, actually running Alesco as a public company. Um, and um, so uh, so that was a great experience and then but a bit of quite a tough experience for me, Alesco, because we, in a way, I, I it was a great opportunity um, to to grow a business, but we, we grew it into the, into the GFC and the GFC was tough and I had some tough experiences there. And so after that, um, I uh, ended up going back into private equity again, but just on Catalyst though, I mean, we did some great deals in the early days, specific brands, Just Jeans, um, Tavana Hotel Group. Um, it was a, it was a very successful time. Probably in a way I was sitting on the boards of some of those companies thinking maybe I could be CEO. I went and did that. I found that it was hard and perhaps in the end I wasn't, that wasn't the best. I was perhaps better as a coach than the CEO. And so I enjoy getting back into private equity with that next leg of the journey with Quadrant. And it was a great time at Quadrant. I joined there in 2011, was involved there for 10 years till 2021 and we, we did, we had some super experiences there and, and made a lot of investments and it turned out to be very successful. Did you learn much from Chris Hadley? Yeah, I mean, Chris is a fantastic um, investor, um, probably the best private equity investor around. And so it was fabulous to be able to work closely with him for 10 years. I sat on the investment committee there at Quadrant for all those 10 years, 35 different investments. Um, and uh, yeah, learned a lot. I mean, I think it's it's um, always, a, you know, super when you get a chance to work with one of the best. What, what are some of the examples of great deals that you've done at either of those um, private equity investors? And if I'm, if I'm right, I'm thinking Catalyst is more of a late stage leverage buyout type model. Um, Quadrant's a bit more late stage, but a bit of growth mixed in there depending on the stream. What, what are some of the great deals that you did during that time? Yeah, look, I think <clears throat> on that transition from the bigger end of the market um, and more matured, perhaps down to the smaller end of the market and more growth orientated, that's been my journey at those at those two funds. And, you know, in a way that started with Pacific Brands in 2001. It was a sort of $800 million acquisition with a large level of debt. It was a super inv- investment and we, we made a great return, but it was a very mature company and... 
when it listed on the public markets, it was not as successful, I think, as it could have been because it didn't have that huge sort of top line growth profile, but it was a super successful private equity deal. And it catalyzed probably the B&D Doors deal, which just sort of started with a small business called CSI Doors. Then we bought B&D Doors and then we bought a, a garage door opener business called ATA. And we built that into a really nice business. It was more of a growth journey. Uh, that was great fun. And in a way, that was the business that I followed with over to Alesco because when Alesco acquired that, I ended up going and joining Alesco and running Alesco. Um, what did Alesco do? Alesco was a, per, a portfolio of industrial brands and B&D was part of one division of building products division. It had a number of other um, it had, yeah, it had a large portfolio, over 100 brands. So it was um, – and, and by the way, back then the brands were sold through, you know, sales forces um, and, you know, traditional channels. There was no such thing as online. And so that was, um, you know, in some ways a cumbersome way to go to market compared to some of the opportunities and disruptive opportunities now. But um, we – and we made a lot of acquisitions. We made about 30 acquisitions at Alesco over that time. I learned a lot, by the way. I mean, I had a great safety journey at Alesco. I had some industrial fatalities that really turned out into a, quite a trauma for me but really helped hone my focus on the importance of safety and culture. And in some ways, my time at Alesco, we made a lot of acquisitions and I really learned out of that process that just – putting businesses together is not that easy and systems and culture, um, you know, and, and trying to glue these businesses together in a constructive way is a real challenge. And it probably made me more focused on organic growth as I went into the days at Quadrant. At Quadrant, my, the first deal that I was um, involved with and, and led actually was a business called Burson. And I'm still very proud of that. That's now called Babcorp. Mm -hmm. And we bought that, um, you know, when it was for about 150 million, actually, I think we floated it for about four or 500 million. And now it's probably, you know, between two and $3 billion business, Babcorp. That was a fantastic journey. That was one of the better ones there. Um, there was another business called the Real Pet Food Company. I had, I've done a three pet sort of related deals and that, that turned out to be a great sector in category and still is a very successful business. One that you, um, would would appeal to you and and uh, and many of your clients. The one that perhaps you're going to say pet circle, eh? No, not pet circle. The no. one perhaps we should have held on to. Um, we thought we were uh, clever at the time. We bought a business called Canberra Data Centers uh, for about four hundred million. We sold it for a, a billion dollars, but it's now owned by the Future Fund and Morrison's is probably worth ten billion. So that was interesting one in the sense that you know if we had have held on or someone had have held on they would have um, a lot of value would have accrued to that over time so there there there's some examples of a number of i, I suppose the, the final batch at quadrant were, were the ones that really led to the formulation of of glow and that was i went through a phase um of doing a number of sort of uh, e-commerce and internet related deals so adore beauty uh, Modi Body, um, uh, Graze Online, uh, and Quadlock, which really, Quadlock probably changed my view quite dramatically on the possibilities of e-commerce because it is a business that has huge growth and super unit economics and really thrives in that e-commerce environment. So this is the company that makes the Phone started cases. Life, the smart case that you click yes. on with a very secure click onto your mountain bike, your 
push bike uh, and a whole heap of ancillary things. But I think their channel to market has been driven via various digital platforms. Yes. And look, I think there's a lot of chatter about the omni-channel and the rev- and and the e-commerce, the whole sort of um, acceleration of e-commerce that came on by COVID. There's a lot of sort of thought that, well, that was just a, a blip, you know, but e-commerce is not going away. And I think what's really unique about that quadlock business is it actually never really thrived in the traditional channels, but it does thrive in those online channels. And so sometimes you find a business that actually e-commerce is the natural channel and the natural home. And then, and if you can find something like that, then it's very, very interesting. Makes me laugh. I, I did a motorbike trip with a great mate from school, Mal Campbell up in Tamworth during COVID. And uh, he rings me the other day and we're going away next week. And he said, he said, Clarkie, can you call into Rebel and get me a new Garmin watch band? I said, yeah, sure, mate. I'll walk in now, but have you checked Amazon or similar? He goes, oh, no, 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 that's too hard, mate, too hard. Anyway, they didn't have stocks. I said, just go on to Amazon, check this. He rings me the next day. He goes, mate, how long has this been going on for? (laughs) (laughs) I fell over laughing. It's just Mm. so funny. So I think you're right. The the genie's out of the bottle and the acceleration through COVID on a lot of those things. um, We're we're just starting to see it. Um, When when I look at um, your background, um, you seem to be very focused on, at the moment, brand names and household and a lot of these businesses, if I look at, you know, the, the, the net business and the clothes, you know, a lot of these aren't, you know, real VC sort of SaaS and AI and crypto. There, there's something very tangible behind that. Has that been design or just outcome? Well, if I look over that, those 22 investments in private equity over the last 20 or so years, where there was a strong brand, we found that um, really that was great when we went to sell. And so that sort of mind share of, of brand we've, we've always found was a good way. If we can grow the earnings is a good way to create value and create demand for that business down the track. So that was a thematic that sort of developed over time that if we could find, uh, businesses that had strong or emerging brands and help build those brands, that the, the value of the brand, you know, is very powerful. I mean, if you think about Warren Buffett, you know, with Coca-Cola, I mean, in the days of Benjamin Graham, you know, it was more mm-hmm. about the hard assets and, um, you know, intrinsic value. intrinsic value, whereas Buffett sort of worked out that you could um, have far less capital intensive businesses and build those brands over time. And we, we clearly, you know, as investors like businesses that don't have that capital intensity too. So building brands, you know, is something that, and, and if you take, go back to B and D, it was sort of an industrial business, but it was sort of a, a brand. Another one we Great were just, brand. we were just chatting about as we, as I poured a glass of water was zip, mm. zip taps, zip hot water. And I mean, is that an industrial brand or is it a consumer brand? And so, but it's a brand everyone knew. And so when you go to sell it, people are interested in buying it, not just because it's a great product, but because people recognise it and value it. So brands was a thematic that had developed over a period of time for me. And I, I guess it's a bit of a case of stick to your knitting. So I've tried to remain focused, um, as Charlie Munger would say, you know, on the things that focus on the things that you're good at and you've got an edge and, and, a, and an advantage in. And so those things you mentioned like AI or I, I don't know anything about and so I don't profess to, to really be an investor in those areas. If, they, if those things could help businesses that, uh, you know, that I know and understand, fine, but certainly not areas that 
we will be looking to investing in. I think one of the other things that over the years that we found, and, and Burson's a good example of that, and Canberra Data Centres, was um, founder-led businesses to, and dealing with succession and, and, and taking that founder's legacy on, we found also was a great thematic and they're, and they're sort of thematics that we continue to work with today. Justin, they say that you learn more from your mistakes or your errors, the ones that didn't go as well. I'll, I'll give you the liberty of talking about, if you can, some of those that didn't go so well across both Catalyst and Quadrant, so you don't have to name them if you don't want to. Um, but what are the, some of the things that you saw go wrong or made it hard um, from a private equity investor point of view? Um, and, and did you learn from that hold you in good stead going forward? Yeah, look, I think there's some obvious ones. I've did invest in a mining services business once and that was very cyclical and I didn't quite get that cycle right. So that, that, that's a hard sector. So it never really, um, went that way again. Um, look, the, probably the, one of the worst investments that I ever made was actually when I was at, um, Alesco and that was part of a journey for me realizing that it's good to have people around you that can second guess you. And that was a business called Total Eden. And it was a, it was a, a portfolio of sort of retail distribution businesses, but they didn't really have any brand and they had very low margins. And so when, when, when the cycle sort of turned against it, there was just no uh, moat in that business. So I think some general thematics there, we really are looking for businesses with very attractive unit economics, high margins, um, you know, room for error. Um, one thing I did notice when we were putting businesses together at Alesco was that when you're putting businesses together that have low growth, your mistakes get punished much harder than if you're putting businesses together that are high growth. So growth is a real elixir, solves a lot of problems, allows you to, to make errors but fix them because the momentum uh, is, in, is in your favour. So um, there, there are a couple of lessons. I, I, there's plenty more but um, it probably, yeah, we'd need a fair bit of time to go through all of that. So... Glow Capital, you've put that um, together. Tell us a little bit about that. You've alluded to it a bit. I'm interested um, in in the background of Kate Morris as well, um, who seems to be very brand orientated. Maybe you can talk about Glow and Kate's background, please. Yeah, look, Kate, uh, over the past 20 years as a sort of bootstrap founder of Adore has really seen a lot of brands come and go at Adore, so has a really good sense of what brands will and won't work. I think we are... Um, uh, as I mentioned before, this sort of founder focus we is has been a thematic that's been very successful to me. And so we feel that by having a founder as part of the senior team, that's a really um, that differentiates us as, as a firm and makes us more relatable to other founders. And what we're trying to do is find the businesses have got fantastic founders, great cultures and a great future. So it gives us a chance hopefully to differentiate ourselves in the market and and then, you know, my experience is industrial brands, probably primarily a little bit of consumer. Hers is more consumer. I think consumer is something that, you know, ever, people are very careful about in this part of the market. And so we probably would only look at consumer staples rather than consumer discretionary. But we, they, that's my background and her background um, mean that they're the areas that we have the expertise and we think we can add the most value. And so that's sort of how, how we're positioned the firm. Why, why are you doing Glow? Why did you put it together? Uh, look, I, it's my third go at a private equity firm. I had a super time at Catalyst. I had a great, incredible journey um, at Quadrant working with Chris for 10 years. But I wanted to do something that was different. Did, I think 
I really felt that the growth part of the market is interesting and, and where we're positioned glow is it's sort of at the smaller end of the market and it's in that sort of breakout growth area of the market. We don't have a huge amount of competition because a lot of the other players have moved to the bigger end of the market. I think it's a very attractive part of the market. We've just actually signed our first deal. It's a business called Cargo Crew and that's a 20-year founder. Um, it's been going for 20 years and, you know, we think the risk profile associated with a business that is making good profits has been around for 20 years and is well positioned for the next leg of growth is, is very attractive for investors. That investment we'll get into in a moment fits right into the profile when I was doing some research of, uh, you know, looking at brand or things or businesses that when we're used to seeing high growth, private equity, earlier stage you know, there's always some software, you know, some buzzwords, everything else. And, and that business strikes me as the complete opposite of buzzware, bu buzzwords. And, and so much so you'd go, well, gee, how can people make the type of returns that people are looking for in private equity um, out of that sort of business? And I also noted that you looked at 300 companies before you made that one investment. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about the investment process you've gone through 300 companies by the sound of it that you've looked at yeah where does that deal come deal flow come from and what is the process to vet 300 before you make that one investment and, and maybe use this one as, as an example yeah look I think what's going on at the moment is the advisors used to be the source, uh, a very important source, and they probably still are of investment opportunities. The only problem with advisors is that they, by the time they get um, an opportunity, it's, you know, it's, it's been um, carefully um, cultivated, I guess, by the seller and, and you're often in, a, in an auction process where competing against other people. But with social media um, and LinkedIn, for instance, it's – and other methods that are available. It's a lot, uh, it's easier now than it was in the past. You don't have to necessarily have that Rolodex to reach out. So we're very focused. We've got a, we run Salesforce and we've got a CRM and we track um, a big sort of opportunity set of outbound um, opportunities. And, and that sort of, to some extent, starts with things that we like or things we're watching and seeing that are interesting and, and, and reaching out. And so, you know, we, we're very, uh, structured and focused in, in going out and finding opportunity for ourselves rather than just waiting for it to come in the door through advisors. And in this part of the market, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, small, medium enterprises and so there's a lot of opportunity out there, the tricks to go out and get it. So part of that 300 is a tremendous amount of outbound by us. And this was a case in point. We, uh, I saw this particular business in, in a profile by a, an a, a digital agency as a really neat sort of case study success story. Someone else in our team then reached out uh, to them directly. They weren't that interested. And then we got Kate on the case and Kate reached out to the founder and they really struck up a great rapport. And that then led to some discussions around, well, this particular business cargo crew is looking to grow in the US and, and, and has some other growth initiatives and having a partner might be a great, you know, a great thing for, for where they are in the life of the business. So, so that, so that outbound focus, uh, we're, we're constantly thinking about where, where society is going, what, what is the opportunity set here and where should we be looking to benefit from that? 
and being quite proactive in our approach. And that's what, when you invest with us, I guess that's what you get. You get us working. It's actually 390 businesses we've looked at so far. And look, a lot of, some of those are, you know, low um, quality and low probability. Uh, a, bit, a large number of them are people we've reached out to and never come back, but we will follow up systematically. Um, but we're very fussy. And it's been a really, as you know, tricky time, um, really tricky time. One of the challenges we've had, and we feel really good about having not done much, to be honest with you, we've been going for 18 months to two years and we've remained very, very disciplined because coming out of COVID, it just had so many weird effects on the on the earnings of so many businesses. Some were enhanced dramatically by COVID and now that's been running off and some really um, were affected badly by COVID and now they're having a sort of revenge trade. And then combine that with the fact that we're going into a potential downturn or what, you know, where's, where are things going with our, with interest rates um, and, uh, yeah, the, and inflation. That's been a really tough thing to predict. I mean, I think everyone's struggled with the whole, uh, even the mortgage cliff, you know, I, I, the, even the RBAs sort of come out to say, well, so far so good, but we've all, everyone's been nervous about everything basically. And, and by the way, it, it's been a, when I was at quarter and we were investing through that up cycle from 11 to 21 as interest rates dropped, I mean, it was just a magnificent time to be in the market. Speed was a real advantage because if you got in, moved quickly, you know, the, the tide was, was taking the earnings up so you could sort of put your foot on um, something and then by the time you'd finished negotiating, it was probably possibly more valuable. Whereas we've been in a funny environment where the long, you know, it's actually the exact opposite. You actually are... It's better to take more time to be more structured, do longer due diligence because – and we looked at a lot of businesses where the earnings just continued to fall. And ironically, the founders in those situations should have sold earlier uh, and should have taken what they could get because it only got worse after that. And that, that's been a funny environment to be in and it takes a lot of uh, discipline to to be very, very careful. There was one, one, one investment we got quite close and we just walked away because we felt that you know, it was the, the tide was going out and it continued to go out. So we were glad we didn't do it. It's it's been an interesting market as you you, you highlighted there. And and going back two years now, um, you're in a position where investment firms similar to yours, probably more focused on the technology side um, and the high growth technology side, were finding themselves, if I'm right, having to almost pitch their credentials to be allowed to get in to invest into some of these high-growth unicorn companies. And then we've seen many of these companies' valuations slowly being dragged down, kicking and screaming 30 40%. Have you seen much of that revaluation down um, or is it too sticky in that industrial space or that consumer brand space where you're operating? It's hard. It's really hard um, for anyone to think they've made a lot of money or have got something very valuable and see it go down. And it's not just the... The founder it's also the previous investors um it's this is a very painful process watching these sort of businesses values fall and it, i suspect they're going to continue to fall because especially um yeah at the top of that cycle before if you were generating 100 percent growth then sure you probably could be valued on a revenue multiple but many of those businesses now are not generating 100 percent growth they might be flat and so they have to then make the transition to the old school valuation methodology, i.e. a multiple of earnings, and they don't have any earnings. So it's a really tricky place to be. So, um, 
but to answer your question, yes, we are seeing evidence of that. And we, our approach is to take longer in our due diligence to have more structuring and more downside protection. And, you know, I think, you know, this gets back to the old sort of lawyer in me, is there a way to sort of form, to formulate a structure or to, or to come up with something that allows um, the gap in valuation to be bridged in a way that manages the downside risk for us, but gives a suitable upside for the seller. Justin, can you tell me a little bit about your view on private equity that in some corners they say there's a, a, pro, a a bit of a bad name with private equity and, and, you know, there's been transactions like Dick Smith's and some, you might have said Pacific Brands, I'm not sure if it's in the same category, where there's a bit of a view that private equity comes in, jazzes it all up, puts lipstick on a pig and sells it to the market and retail investors uh, end up bearing the brunt of that. What's your view of that sort of narrative that gets around from time to time? Look, it does happen from time to time, David, and that's a big challenge for the industry. I think for me, what gives me the greatest pleasure in a way are those deals that I mentioned to you before, the ones that have endured and gone on to be, be great businesses and great brands and we're privileged to be part of that journey and we're setting them up for long-term future success. I don't think it does anyone, any, you know, it's not positive for anyone in the industry, these the stories that you're alluding to. So um, I think, yeah, we... At Glow, we're very focused on growth. We're focused on partnership and alignment of interest. And the best stories in the long run are going to be the ones where we've helped build businesses that go on to do great things. I do think culture is really important. And one thing I found when I was um, building the growth fund at Quadrant was some businesses that had some super cultures and how important culture actually is uh, to an organisation. It's all very well to have a founder but if the founder has a really poor culture around them, then it's, you know, a fish will rot from the head ultimately. And that's, it's a big challenge to deal with all that. And I think there's, you know, part of that cultural issue to some extent, you know, is in the industry as well. I think we've got to really work in the, as an industry to make sure we've got the right um, levels of diversity, uh, gender balance, and that we've, um, yeah, we've, we build enduring cultures. And, um, and that I think will ensure that, you know, we partner with, uh, with uh, companies that also recognise the value of culture and, and go on to do um, positive things and build um, the business in a, in a, in a measured way. Um, it's not too opportunistic. I mean, one of the great advantages of private equity is you do get to buy whenever, at the time you choose and you do get to sell at the time you choose and that whilst it, a tactical advantage also does lead itself to situations where uh, on the sell side it's been too opportunistic and then that can really unravel as, as has been the case in some of those investments. Justin, with the companies that you've observed with really good culture, what are some of the common things they have in place or the traits or systems or processes that leads to that good culture? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, firstly... An emphasis on culture full stop uh, as a start is really important. So um, people that um, – I mean, I think, yeah, culture is – it's difficult to define too specifically other than that it's where people are working together in a way that results in a high-performance team but there's mutual respect. 
and and it, it's an organisation that people want to want to join because because um, they want to be part of something larger and 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 help do something um, above and beyond and that's going to make a difference in the future. And so we, uh, I think it's it's one of those things that you you have to dig. I mean, in culture, may manifest itself in the in in the way people are treated, or clearly the way people are treated in the organisation, in the way in the way that the organisation's been built in terms of um, investing um, for the long term in systems and processes, and and you know, I think the way that the organisation interacts with its customers, um, your customers, you know, can see uh, and benefit from that culture as well. So it's. It, it's it's a difficult one to sort of pin down to any one thing, but I think uh, we have a saying that when you know we sometimes you can see a business has sort of been built with love rather than just with sheer aggressive. And part of that journey for me was way back, you know, in the old days of like the BTR Nilexes and mm-hmm. a lot of these old industrial businesses that were cobbled together. You know, that's a far cry from what we're after now, and that is a business that you know where you've got a super team and it's been. Um, as I say, built with love and it's, it's, it's building up for the long term and that. So would high turnover be a real diligence red light? hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. But I mean, the, the flip side to that is that one of the challenges also is that you might find a business where there's no turnover and that, that can be reflective of an absolutely brilliant business, but it might also be reflection where, you know, it might have to be delicately dealt with as you migrate the talent in the organisation up to the next level so it can make, it can take the next step in that growth journey. And I think that has to be handled with respect and care and that is a really important part of the business that we're in. And how hands-on as an investor are you? Um, you, you hear various people talk about, you know, they're almost like management consultants and they're every two weeks versus someone who's just fighting to get on the cap table who's a secondary investor there for the ride. What, what, what's the globe position on that? We always go on the board, so that, that is a must. And we, we would only go get involved in a situation where there's mutual respect and, 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 uh, and complementarity so that we're valued by our partners and, our, and, um, and we value them. Um, and we can work together to create something even better. So, um, but we we don't actually. Kate and myself have both run operating businesses. So I ran at Lesco and had three and a half thousand staff. Uh, by the way, I was probably in over my head at that point, but I did learn a bit because for six years I had to present the budgets. You know, I had to to manage the team, and Kate obviously twenty years building a door, same sort of thing. So we've got um, a fair idea, but we don't want to run the businesses. We we want to enable, we, we really are more strategic advisors. We typically have a weekly call and a monthly board meeting. If things, we can get involved in helping and uh, hiring people and so on and we're clearly involved in strategy and we're all on the same team in terms of growing that business over time and helping it achieve its objectives. But, we're, but private equity are typically small organisations and we don't actually, we're not operators, we're more, you know, support, cheerleaders, strategy. What sort of returns do you think investors should have in mind or, or should expect when investing in this part of the market? Look, we, we're, we're target, targeting at a gross level an, an IRR of 30% plus and we're looking to sort of three, you know, three times multiple of money over three to five years. So the – and in some ways if you don't target that, you're never going to even go close to achieving it. So that's – we think – 
I mean, that in a way, if you find really great private equity funds, they can deliver fantastic returns over time and they do. And that's probably why, you know, the Future Fund and some of the very big family offices globally, they allocate a large amount of their portfolio to alternative assets and private equity in particular because it actually the good uh, top quartile managers have generated fantastic returns over time. It's hard. It's a hard business. When you look at 390 uh, different opportunities and you choose one, uh, you know, that you, you there's a lot of, um, you know, you're very focused on making that one work. And so um, I don't, I mean, from a sort of capital markets theory, um, I think the evidence is that private equity has, ref- has outperformed the public markets over time. But, you know, the good managers have done, have really outperformed and perhaps the bad managers haven't out, you know, have underperformed quite dramatically. So it is a, a business where if you don't do a good job, you're effectively out of business. So in a way um, that puts a very high, high standard on staying in the business because if you, if you start losing people's money, they won't give you any more. I think Goldman Sachs has some good research around the uh, extra that people tend to get in private markets as being around at the 5, 10, 15-year market as the equivalent of 3% per annum as an average sort of surplus that they get. Um, tell us about the fund that I believe you're currently raising for. Um, what size is it? How many investments will it make? It's got one in there at the moment. Um, what will it look and feel like? Yeah, it's a closed-end fund. So that is um, – different to investing in the listed market. So we effectively ask our investors to make a commitment and then we, we, when we find the opportunities, we issue a drawdown notice and ask them to fund those investments. We're looking to raise 100 to $150 million. We'll make uh, seven or five to eight investments uh, in that fund. Um, it's a 10-year closed-end fund, so we look to make those investments in the first uh, five years of the fund, and we'll look to realise them by the by the close of the fund. But we're very focused. We don't do that much. We whatever we do has to really work. And you might make two or three investments a year, and then you really get involved and make sure those investments work. Justin, well, fantastic for taking the time with us. Really appreciate it. Um, fantastic. Congratulations on your career and achievements thus far. Uh, super impressive. Thank you for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you very much, David. I've really loved it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.